0: Uh, my name is Greg Boyd. Happy New Year, everybody. First service of 09. Lord bless this year. Starting tomorrow night, uh, we're going to have a four-week class that is, being, is based on Letters from a Skeptic, which is uh, this series of letters that I wrote with my dad and was turned into a book. And uh, it's, it's on apologetics, evangelism, kind of giving reasons for believing in the Christian faith. And I'm going to just give a, a short 25-30 minute talk at the beginning uh, of each class, and then we'll open up for, for questions, whatever questions people have. I love doing this. I, I just, uh, to me, it's just, it's just a blast, and sometimes it's helpful. And so if you or someone you know um, has questions about the Christian faith, objections to the Christian faith, why should I believe in Jesus, why should I believe in the Bible, blah, 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 I really encourage you to come out and be a part of this. You don't have to register or anything, just show up. I think it starts at like 7 o'clock. Is that right, 7 o'clock? Uh, it's in the bulletin. Whatever time the bulletin says, I'm going to trust his rights. So. Uh, and it'll be in this auditorium. So come and be a part of that. Also, just FYI, this Friday, um, uh, my rock band, NDY, we're old, but we're not dead yet. That's what NDY stands for. I'm the drummer. Uh, we're just our small group, plays instruments. So we, we, we uh, do these dances. Uh, and they're fundraisers for a Providence Ministry, which supports kids in Haiti. So this Friday, we'll be at the dugout in uh, Matamidai, uh, or as they pronounce it there, uh, Dujois. Someone said they they pronounce it like that in Matamidai. It's a real sophisticated bar, let me tell you. And so we'll uh, we'll be going from, we just play like 70s, 80s rock and roll. We'll throw in a couple of uh, U2 songs just to keep Julie happy. But um, uh, we'll be playing from 7.30 to 10. And then Norm has an R&B band, a real good soul group that is going to be playing from 10.30 to 12.30. And so you can come for all of that or parts of it or whatever you want. And all the proceeds go to uh, kids in Haiti. Um, The idea behind Norm's band, uh, he's our worship leader, worship pastor, uh, and his band's called Kingdom. And the idea, I, I got a hold of this when I was over in Europe this last year at a missions conference. And one of the ways they do missions out there, one of the most successful ways they do mission is is this. No one will go to a church if you invite them to go to church. So what they do is they take the church to the people. And where the people are, are in clubs. So they put together the, the kickinest band in town and go to wherever they'll have them. Uh, and, uh, you know, play these gigs, play their kind of music, but in between sets, they develop relationships with people, and then they invite them to a little discussion after the the, the dance is done with, and they talk about life issues, and it's just a gradual way of, of relationally bringing people into the kingdom, and it's beautiful, and uh, so we we brought this back home, and And Norm has really been grooving on this idea of having a Woodland Hills-sponsored R&B band that's that's playing the clubs. It's the kickin'est band in the Twin Cities. And this is their debut, okay? So uh, you might want to come out and and check that out. They'll be playing from 10.30 uh, to 12.30. All right. What we do here, if you're visiting, is we worship passionately. We believe in that. Singular focused worship. And then we just dig into the Word and try to chew on that passionately. And uh, with some exceptions, we basically just go through the Bible, nothing fancy here. Uh, Just one verse at a time, which I like because it forces you to preach on everything. Today's topic is one that would be easy to just sort of uh, skip over. Uh, It's a little bit controversial. It's hard-hitting. It takes a lot of digging into it to really get a grip on this. I'm going to be talking about divorce, remarriage, and the law of love because that's what comes next in the text. We're looking at Luke chapter 16, verses 16 through 18. And uh, if you think this is just about people who have been divorced or are now remarried, uh, I want you to think again. Uh, You'll find by the end of this message that I think pretty much all of us are encompassed by this teaching. It's got something to say to all of us. Uh, I think it's profoundly important. And so this is a very dense message. It's a very teaching-oriented message. You're going to have to keep your thinking caps on the whole way. Uh, if you doze off even for a moment, you, you might miss something important. I'm With most of my messages, you can doze off for most of it. And you won't miss much at all. But this one, you're going to have to stay awake. And if ever you're going to take notes in a message, I encourage you to take notes in this one. Because uh, it's very content-oriented. And I want to start by, by just praying that God will be in this and open up our hearts and minds uh, to build his kingdom. Father, I thank you for every person who's in this auditorium right now and for every person who is part of our Padrishner Congregation, or listening through uh, uh, the television or any other means. And I pray, God, for all who are hearing this right now, that you would really soften our hearts to hear your word. And God, I pray that you'd infuse this message with your authority and to bring healing where healing is needed and freedom where there's bondage and conviction where there's maybe apathy. And God, just do your work. Just do your work. Apply it individually as you see fit. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. All right, let's dig in. We'll start with a verse that we uh, addressed a little bit last week and go on from there, starting in verse 16. Jesus says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, since that time, and note this, there's a, there's a clean break in history. There's pre-Jesus, post-Jesus, pre-kingdom, post-kingdom. Now we're in post-kingdom, and that begins to be inaugurated with John the Baptist, Since John the Baptist, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and people are forcing their way into it, or as I suggested last week, it should be translated, are being urged to enter into it. And then Jesus says, it is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Now what's going on here? Jesus is saying that there's a new program here. It's the program of the kingdom of God. It's good news. Uh, The law and the prophets were uh, kind of God's order of business up until John the Baptist, but now there's inaugurated a new thing, the good news of the kingdom. But at the same time, Jesus immediately adds, don't think for a moment that that means that the law and the prophets are being set aside. It's a common misunderstanding. People think that when you're preaching grace, it means... That lawlessness applies, that there's no right or wrong anymore, it's all relative, and everyone can just kind of do their own thing. And Jesus is saying, no, don't think that. The reason is because Jesus came not to end the law or to set aside the law, but to fulfill the law. And as the incarnation of God, he's the incarnation of the fulfillment of the law. And then he came to reconcile us to God and set us free from diabolical oppression And to send the Spirit of God into our heart. And when the Spirit of God comes into our heart, as was prophesied throughout the Old Testament, the law of God is written on our hearts. And far from setting aside the law, we have the law internalized in us, and even intensified, as we'll see a little bit later on. Uh, The particulars particulars of the cultural aspects of the law are set aside. That had to do with the particularity of Israel. But the essence of the law is now planted in our heart. Jesus fulfills the law. We're put inside of Jesus when we surrender our life to him. Uh, we are made partakers of the one who is the one true covenant keeper. His nature is given to us through the power of the Spirit. And so we become people who now, by, through internal motivation, by the power of the Spirit, live in right relationship with God, which was the essence of the law. In fact, the essence of the law, the New Testament teaches over and over again, is the law of love. That's why Paul says that love is the fulfillment of the law. If you live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you, uh, you will fulfill the whole law. Not the particulars that had to do with the cultural aspects of the Old Testament, but the heart of the law is now inside us. We don't do it for external reasons, but rather we do it because our nature is now being transformed into a God-loving, people-loving sort of person. And so the good news of the kingdom does not mean that the, the, the character of God or the law is set aside. Rather, it's internalized and even intensified. And now Jesus is going to give us an example of how the law of love in our hearts fulfills the Old Testament rather than setting it aside. So he goes on to say this in verse 18. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And the tension in the room just went up a little bit. There it is. Now we're going to have to chew on this thing. The first question that I have that comes to my mind is, how is that an example of how the law of love in our hearts fulfills the Old Testament? Because as a matter of fact, the Old Testament, as we'll see here in a little bit, permitted for divorce and remarriage. So how does that fulfill it? This is a huge issue. This is a huge issue. I, uh, several months ago, was speaking with a lady. I'll call her Carol, not a real name, but I'll call her that. And um, the conversation we had is one that I have at least a couple times a year with with, with various people. Her situation was basically this. She married a guy who looks super Christian. In fact, he was still a pastor. Uh, People saw him as just a cat's meow when it came to spirituality, but inside the house It was a very different story which happens all too often and um, In his marriage, he treated his wife like the household pet except that he never beat up the household pet And he did his wife. He was abusive Spiritually and emotionally and even physically and she put up with this for a good 20 years Thinking that if she ever got out of this marriage, there was no other option for her. She could never get remarried And uh, she didn't see being single as a real option for her. So she stayed with all the best intentions, stayed in this very abusive relationship. She finally had the courage to leave when it was clear that he was never going to change, didn't want to change, or anything of the sort. And now she's sitting in my office, and uh, in her words, she felt like she was condemned to a life of solitude. Uh, She was lonely, she was desperate, she was miserable. But she believed that she could never get remarried because if she did, she'd be... Entering into an adulterous relationship because, as she said it, in God's eyes, I'm still married to my first husband. And that made her feel imprisoned and trapped. There's a man that she was fond of and who was very fond of her, and it was breaking her heart, but she wouldn't even explore the possibility of entering into a relationship with him because she thought that, in God's eyes, she'll always be married to that first abusive man. Now, is that true? Is that true? If it is true that you're really married to your first husband or wife, then shouldn't we be telling people who are remarried that they ought to get a divorce and try to get back to their first spouse? Uh, There was actually one denomination that used to toe that line and hold that policy. And as you can easily imagine, it got very, very ugly and very, very messy sometimes. I mean, what if the first spouse was, in fact, very abusive? What if there are kids involved in the second or third marriage? I mean, it gets very, very tangled. And how is that in any stretch of the imagination living out the law of love? There's also this question that comes immediately to my mind, and that is that I know dozens and dozens and dozens of remarried couples for whom it seems that the hand of God and blessing is on that marriage. I mean, God is all over the, the thing, and, and blessing them, blessing their kids, and, and it's a God-glorifying relationship, and, and they're growing, you know, in the Lord, and, and there's, there's a fulfillment and joy that is there. How is it possible for God to be blessing that relationship if, in fact, it's an adulterous relationship? Because I don't think God blesses adulterous relationships. These are some of the questions I'm starting off with here. So I want to wrestle with this thing, and, and, and we're going to really, you know, just try to get our minds around this. We need to take a comprehensive and in-depth and holistic approach to this. Uh, It's always bad to just fall into sort of pat-answer, cliche, Bible-proof texting, but on some subjects, it becomes really damaging when we go that route, so we're not going to go that route. What I want to do here is I'm going to give six, I've reduced it from 16 to six, (laughs) biblical teachings that I think are relevant to this issue. And we're going to be coming at this from different angles. And only when I get to the last one am I, am, am I going to deal with this particular text. So you've got to hang with me on this. Uh, the other five are, are, I think, very necessary and important background to it. So six biblical principles. Number one, whatever Jesus means by this teaching, it's really clear that God hates divorce. He says so. Malachi chapter 2. Uh, I hate divorce. And, and that sentiment, it permeates the whole of Scripture. Uh, Marriage is sacred. Marriage is the first and most foundational institution that God gave the human race. Marriage is the only institution that God gave the human race before the fall. It's foundational to everything. God hates when it's dissolved. God hates divorce because he loves us. And he knows how foundational marriage is to the good of, of, of society. And in that light, we have just got to say that the divorce rate in the United States is an abomination. And even more strongly, the divorce rate among professing Christians is, is even more of an abomination. It's actually higher than the national average, especially in the Bible Belt. And that's an abomination. It just ought not to be. And in that light, I want to say here, as clear as I can Kingdom people. I don't know what your marriage may be like. King of people who are married, it may be that right now you're really struggling, but I want to encourage you, I want to implore you to shut the divorce door and remind yourself that God hates marriage. I mean, yes, God hates marriage. He hates divorce. God hates marriage. I guarantee you that quote all by itself will show up on someone's blog, I guarantee you. <laughs> Pastor Boyd says God hates marriage. <laughs> he hates divorce. As I'll, I'll, Later on, I'll show that there's some marriages he hates more than divorce, but that's a s- separate point. I want to encourage you to shut the, <laughs> shut the divorce door. I'm not asking you to stay in the misery that you're in. Uh... I'm not asking to you stay, to stay in a condemned situation, but I am saying work on your marriage. If two people are willing to work towards it, I can promise you, from my own experience and the experience of many others, however bad it is, however many wrongs there have been that, are, that have been done, if two people are willing to forgive and to work at it, God can build something beautiful out of that. I've shared here before that Shelley and I, in our own marriage, uh, 13 years ago or so, it finally came time to kind of notice the white elephant in the middle of the room that we'd been sort of dancing around but trying to ignore for a long time and, and had to just acknowledge that, in fact, we were very far apart and lived in two different worlds and, and our wiring is so fundamentally different and we don't really understand each other and we finally had to notice that. And we'd been trying not to, I think, because it was very scary and to, to, to call attention to that. And it it got ugly and and it was painful and it was difficult. But for no other reason than just because we took a vow before God and before other witnesses that we were going to stay together for better or for worse, we worked towards it. We got help, we got counseling. And and, and I'm telling you, I can't, as I'm sitting up here talking to you right now, honestly, I can't believe the depth of love that we've discovered. Uh, In some ways, it's all the more precious because we've had to work so hard at it, we're so different. And, and, and so you have to work to build bridges to understand one another and to get into each other's side, each other's worlds, and, and to have common interests. But the sheer effort, I know she loves me because she works so hard at trying to understand me and vice versa. And, 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 and you create a precious diamond there. And if two people are willing to work at it, God can build something beautiful out of this. I encourage you to shut the divorce door. Now, that's not an really easy thing. I'm not saying, oh, it's going to be happy ever after, whatever. It's work. In fact, you have to die to yourself. It's, it's crucifying yourself, which is why it's so kingdom to do it. But after the crucifixion, there is a resurrection. And I'm telling you, you can find a depth of love you couldn't have before dreamed of. Working through difficult marriages fulfills the, the, the law of love because love believes all things and hopes all things and love perseveres. And so I encourage you to persevere persevere. Don't stay where you're at, stagnant, thinking you always got to put up and be miserable. No. To be married means you're working, you're moving in a direction, and you're submitting your marriage to God. So number two, first one's God hates divorce. Secondly, we need to know that sex creates a one flesh reality that is never supposed to be broken. Jesus said in Matthew 19, that when two people come together in marriage, the two will become one flesh. And he's here quoting Genesis chapter 2. So they are no longer two, Jesus says, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Notice here that it's what God has joined together. The one flesh relationship of a husband and wife is something that God creates. And it's intended to last for a lifetime. The one-flesh relationship is more than sexual intimacy, but it includes sexual intimacy, and throughout the Bible, it's reserved for marriage. In fact, uh, sexual union is the sign of the marriage covenant, just like circumcision was the sign of the Israeli covenant, and communion is the sign of the Christian covenant, uh, se- sexual intimacy is the sign of the marriage covenant. And God's ideal, from the very beginning, was for us to have a single one-flesh relationship with a person that would last forever. Marriage is supposed to be for life. And God hates when that gets severed. But I want us to notice this. This is very important. Any sexual intercourse outside the original one-flesh relationship is a break from God's ideal, and in that sense involves Adultery. It doesn't matter how casual the sex was. A one flesh reality is created there. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, Don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said, and now he quotes Genesis 2, the same passage Jesus earlier quoted, the two will become one flesh. A one flesh reality is created through sexual union regardless of the intention of the people who are involved in the sexual union. This is why in the Old Testament, if a man had sex, sexual intercourse with a virgin, he had to marry her because the thinking was, you've already entered into the one flesh relationship, you've already taken on the sign of the covenant, so it's only appropriate that now you will take on the whole covenant. And what this means, folks, is this. Jesus' teaching about remarriage involving adultery actually applies to all who have ever had more than one sexual partner. And now there's a few more people than just divorced people who are interested in this topic. Whatever Jesus means by a remarried person being an adulterer or adulteress applies to all of us who've had more than one sexual partner in our life. And so let's think through the implications of this. If, if, if you're really, if you are quote-unquote really still in the quote eyes of God joined with the person you first had sexual intercourse with, well then does that mean that we should be going to married people and telling them, well, you need to get divorced and try to go back to the person you first had sexual uh, intercourse with? You know, the person in ninth grade. Because in God's eyes you're still un- united with them. That could get really awkward and very, very painful. And how would that fulfill the law of love? Okay, I'm just raising the questions here. Okay, here's a third important biblical principle. God has always been willing to accommodate his ideals to our fallen uh, state. And for that, we can be profoundly grateful. God's ideal was always monogamy, having one single, one flesh relationship that lasts your life. That's always God's ideal. And yet we find times in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where he would allow for polygamy, which is having more than one wife. Men were allowed to have several wives, and in the case of kings, several hundred wives. And then he was even willing to bend a little further and, and institute this sort of halfway marriage, what he called concubines, where the woman didn't have a full legal status, and the man didn't have the full responsibility of a husband towards her, but she could bear his children. They were concubines. Um, It wasn't God's ideal or anything close to God's ideal, but he allowed for it. God hates anything other than his ideal, and yet in this situation, it was a matter of God choosing the lesser of two evils. It involved sin. It missed the mark. That's the biblical definition of sin. It was outside the bullseye. Hamartia is the Greek word for sin. It missed the mark. It was a compromise. But see, in the ancient world, life being what it was, uh, for a woman not to be under the care of some man often meant that they would... The women and the children would starve to death or be sold into slavery or be forced into prostitution. And so God is saying, even though this is a compromise on my ideal of having a single one-flesh relationship for life, it's better to compromise here than to have starving kids or people sold into slavery or forced into uh, prostitution. God is a God who accommodates his ideal uh, to the realities of our situation. And that fulfills the law of love because love always deals with reality where people really are at. And so polygamy and the quasi-marriages of having concubines is better than women and children starving to death or being slaves or being forced into prostitution. God does the same thing with divorce and remarriage. He accommodates to the lesser of two evils. We find in Deuteronomy 24 that God allowed a man to divorce his wife if she wrote him, uh, if he wrote her a bill of, of, of divorce, a certificate of divorce. And God does that as an accommodation to our fallen state, to the hardness of our hearts. He hates it, but he allows for it. And so Jesus says this in Matthew 19. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives Because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. This wasn't God's ideal. It's only because your hearts were hard that he allows for this. This fulfills the law of love. Because by writing a certificate of divorce, God's doing two things here. He's, first of all, slowing down the process. He's, he, he's bringing a sort of legal application to it. You have to go through the trouble of, of, of writing out the certificate of divorce. And so he's, he's forcing the man to think about it. People were, guys were throwing the, the, their wives out for, for willy-nilly reasons. And so he's saying, you got to think about this and you got to make it official. And by the way, all the teachings about divorce and remarriage in the Bible are applied to men. They're directed towards men because in the ancient world, at least the ancient Jewish world, men were the only ones who had any power and made any decisions. In an egalitarian society or more egalitarian society such as our own, uh, the teachings would apply to to everybody, but that's why the teachings specifically towards men. And so by making them uh, write out a certificate of divorce, it slowed the process down. Makes it a little bit less arbitrary. But it also gave the woman legal proof that she was no longer bound to that man, which opened up the possibility for her to be remarried, which, as I mentioned earlier, in the ancient world is very important because living on your own as a woman in the ancient world, uh, is uh, your options are, are very few. So it fulfills the law of love. God saw that in the fallen world, divorce is inevitable, and so he's making the best of a bad situation. God has always been willing to accommodate his ideals to all our fallen state, which leads to a fourth important teaching. God honors the dissolution of covenants, even the covenant of marriage, divorce. Now, here's something that's not often noticed. In Deuteronomy 24, when God gives this instruction, has the man write out a bill of divorce and sends his wife out. If she gets remarried and her husband, her second husband divorces her or even dies, she's then free to marry anyone else who wants her except her first husband. The Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, forbids her going back to her first husband. Now, that also fulfilled the law of love because God is once again, as he does so often in the Old Testament, he's protecting the women. He's saying, guys, you think about this. Because once you send her out that door, it's final. No more of this yo-yo stuff where you send her out and have her back, send her out. No, you know what? You've got to think about this because it's going to be permanent. She's not allowed to go back to him. In fact, in Jeremiah 3, it says it desecrates the land if she goes back to the first spouse. But what I'm wondering is this. How is this teaching possible if, in God's eyes, they're still married? She's still married to that first husband. If in God's eyes, she's still married to that first husband, then wouldn't that be the first one, the only one that God would want her to go back to if her second husband dies? Because really, she's still married to that first guy. The fact that he prohibits, he's the one guy on the planet that's not allowed to marry her, shows that in God's eyes, the marriage really has been canceled. The covenant has been broken. You see, God wants a one-flesh relationship uh, to last a lifetime. He wants us to have a single one-flesh relationship in our lifetime. And any break from that misses the mark. Any break from that is sin. Any break from that is technically adultery. Yet when the covenant is dissolved, God doesn't pretend like it's not dissolved. God wants a one-flesh relationship to last a lifetime. But people sometimes don't. And it takes two people to sustain a one flesh relationship. God doesn't always get what God wants. In fact, Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. But that presupposes that people can separate. It's just that Jesus is saying, don't let that happen. God doesn't want that to happen. But as a matter of fact, it does happen, and when it does happen, God doesn't pretend like it didn't happen. It did. What it shows is that God, God, as much as God hates it, He honors the dissolution, the cessation, the ending of covenants, as much as He honors the initiation of covenants. Which leads to my fifth point. God hates divorce. But as I misspoke earlier, he hates certain marriages even more than divorce. In Ezra chapter 10, the Lord says this. Now, honor the Lord, through Ezra, he says, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. God is telling the Israelites to divorce their foreign wives. Now, God told him earlier, don't be marrying foreign wives because he saw that that was going to pollute and dilute the faith of the Israelites. So he warned against this, but they did it anyways. And so now God says to them, put away your foreign wives. Now, God still hates divorce. He hates divorce because marriage is sacred. But in this case, the harm that was being done by, being, by staying married to these foreign wives was greater than the harm of divorce. He hates it, but he commanded it. In fact, as much as God hates divorce, there's one instance in the Bible where he himself engaged in it. In Jeremiah chapter 3, Yahweh says, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all of her adulteries. God, as much as he hates divorce, divorced Israel. Now, of course, like all of our language about God, this is metaphorical, but it says something profound here. That as much as God hates divorce, there's some things he hates even more than that. In this case, it was his relationship with Israel. Now, when God divorced Israel... He wasn't killing a marriage. What he was doing was simply acknowledging that there is no marriage. Israel would say they had a covenant with Yahweh. They still worshiped him and whatever, but they were acting like they weren't in a marriage relationship with Yahweh. They were acting as though uh, they were out on their own. They were chasing after other wives. They were chasing after false gods. And so all God was doing in giving this certificate of divorce is really, it was a death certificate. It was just announcing that this, in fact, is dead. A death certificate doesn't kill anybody. It just announces that something, in fact, is dead. And so also Yahweh is here just saying, here's what's true, here's what's real. We don't have a covenant. How do I know that? Because despite your words, you're not acting like we have a covenant. There's no reality here. And God always deals only in the commodity of reality. I always encourage people, a couple, to to work towards reconciliation because I know that if two people are willing, I don't care how far apart they are, I don't care how much animosity there is, I don't care how much wrong has been done, I know it's possible not only to salvage that marriage but to make something beautiful out of it. But at the same time, it takes two people who are willing. If one or both partners in a dead marriage are unwilling to work at it, staying legally married just to keep up the appearances, that doesn't doesn't honor God. God is only concerned with truth. He only deals with the commodity of reality. And the truth is, if two people are unwilling to even try to have a marriage, well, then you don't have a marriage and a a divorce is simply announcing what is already true. You're not killing anything. You're just announcing what is real. So these are my sixth point. And in some ways, the most important point. We need to understand that Jesus, throughout his ministry, always held up God's ideal. And one of the primary reasons why he holds up God's ideal is to undermine any sort of self-righteousness we might have, about doing the accommodation that God gives us. And he's offering us, he's giving us the ideal that we're to strive after. So let me give you a couple examples of this, all from the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, for example, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was sort of the supreme court of, of the Jewish world. And the word raka uh, was a really kind of an unintelligible phrase, but it was insulting. I've, I've seen it compared to sort of flipping someone the bird in our culture. You know, It's just a way of really insulting someone. Raka! And anyone who says, you fool, listen to this. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. I'm thinking a lot of us are in danger of the fire of hell. So look it, to be angry or insulting to someone misses the mark of God's bullseye, misses the mark of God's ideal as much as murdering someone does. It's committing murder in your heart. You're guilty of murder. But J- Jesus is not saying, therefore, that anybody who has anger or who says raka or fool should therefore be put to death, which is the, re- the first century, the required punishment, For someone who murdered. Jesus isn't tightening the legal restrictions or the social consequences of murder in the Old Testament. What what Jesus is doing is this. He's saying nobody can feel righteous because they haven't murdered somebody if at the same time they have anger in their heart or violence in their heart and mouth towards somebody. And he is saying that kingdom people should strive not just to avoid murdering people physically, but to avoid murdering them in our minds and our hearts. Kingdom people are not to be satisfied just with how we behave, but rather to be aware of what's going on in our mind and our heart and what's coming out of our mouth. Because, see, we're called to a higher law than the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's why Jesus says... Uh, Your righteousness, the righteousness of kingdom people, must exceed the righteousness of uh, of Pharisees and Sadducees because they're just concerned about the externals, the behavior. But to be in the kingdom is not just to be concerned about external behavior, but rather to have your mind and your heart submitted to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and therefore to purge out all of the anger and animosity that leads people to murder, and that is itself a form of murder. And then right after this, Jesus says this you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman, again, he's speaking only to the men here, but now it applies to all, who looks at a person lustfully has already committed adultery with them in in their heart. To have lust towards another misses the mark of God's bullseye, that bullseye of a single, one-flesh relationship for life, it misses the mark of God's ideal as much as, as actual intercourse does. It is, in fact, adultery because it misses the mark. And now we have to realize that Jesus' teaching about divorce and remarriage applies not just to divorced and remarried people and not just to people who have had more than sexual, one sexual partner for life, but anyone who's ever thought in those terms, who's ever left, lusted after another. And now I'm thinking that the audience interested in this topic just got a whole lot bigger. It's adultery in the heart. But Jesus is not here saying that therefore anyone who has committed adultery in their heart should be stoned, which was the required punishment for somebody who had committed adultery. He's not tightening the legal restrictions or the social consequences on the Old Testament's teaching about adultery. What he is doing, however, is this. He's saying no one can feel righteous just because they never committed adultery or just because they never have been remarried or just because they've never had sex with more than one person. They can't feel righteous if they've ever lusted after a person uh, who was not their, their spouse. They too are guilty of adultery. And Jesus is at the same time saying that for kingdom people, we should strive not just to avoid actual physical adultery, but to avoid Adultery in our heart. We're to purge from our heart and from our mind all lust. For we're called to live by a higher law. It's not just the law of external behavior. It's the law of love that's to govern our heart. And whether you realize it or not, looking at a person and objectifying them and unclothing them and having sex with them in your mind is dishonoring to them if they're not your spouse. And so it violates the law of love. And we're called to live by the law of love. So Jesus holds up the ideal not to change the social consequences of anything, but just to humble us and to call us to a higher law, the law of love. And then right after this, Jesus goes on to say this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. Along the same lines, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That's Deuteronomy 24. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, causes her to become an adulteress and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Now what was going on here is that there were men who were feeling very righteous about themselves because when they divorced their wives, they took the trouble to write out a bill of divorce. And they would say, oh look, we're obeying the Bible. We're actually going through the trouble of writing out a bill of divorce, feeling righteous about it. And Then then they would debate with one another about what are the proper grounds for filling out a uh, bill of divorce. Uh, Some thought you could divorce your wife for any reason whatsoever. You weren't happy with the way she cooked breakfast. Others said, no, it has to be something really gross or or sexual or something of the sort. And they were debating about that. And what Jesus does several times in the gospel is he says, what are you fighting about that for? Feeling righteous over who's doing the accommodation the best. The truth is that all of that is simply an accommodation. It's because of the hardness of your hearts that you've been having this discussion so you can't feel righteous about it. His teaching is that all divorce involves hardness of hearts. That's the only reason why God permits it in the first place. What's the point of arguing over the technicalities? Now, l- let me say this as kind of an aside. Some Christians have interpreted this passage specifically in Matthew as providing us with one such technicality. They think that Jesus here is, is giving us the, the one loophole for Christians to get out of a marriage if your partner engages in sexual immorality. So I have known people in miserable marriage who, marriages who are actually hoping, if not praying, that their spouse will have an affair because that will get them off the hook. Oh, if only they'd have an affair, well then I could, I'd be free again. I've, I've known people who have been divorced who are praying that their spouse will either get remarried first or, or jump in the sack with somebody because that would get them off the hook. And I guess the rule is that whoever marries first, then that's adultery, but not, now you're free and you can marry somebody else. Whenever you find yourself praying for someone else to have an affair, something's gone wrong in your theology. I'm just thinking. Uh, You know, uh, God only deals with the commodity of reality. And whenever we turn God into sort of this this lawyer that we're trying to outsmart with our technical loopholes, something has gone awry. Like there's this rule, all your whole being wants to get out of it, but because you can't until they technically do the, have sex first or something like that. Something's gone awry here. Now I can't get into this whole discussion, but I'll just say this. I would argue uh, that this exception clause here is specific. It's only found in Matthew. It's not found in the Luke passage that we looked at or in Mark because Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. Now, what was unique to Jews is that they, in contrast to all the other peoples, they had a a one- to two-year betrothal period, uh, engagement period, where you were legally married, uh, and yet you didn't consummate the marriage until a later time when you had the wedding. And during this one- to two-year betrothal period, you were legally married, but if, if, if the spouse engaged in anything that was sexually immoral, you could then get out of it. Uh, by writing a bill of divorce. I think that's who Jesus is speaking to. What what I think confirms that is this. Jesus, the exception clause says, except for sexual immorality, and he uses the word porneia, which is usually the word for sex outside of marriage. He doesn't say except for adultery, which is the word that is usually used when a married person has sex with somebody other than their spouse. So I think he's talking about this engagement period. And once you're married... Any sort of technical thinking is to be be gotten rid of. But however you interpret that, it's very clear that the point that Jesus is getting at is not to give us a loophole. That's the thing he's arguing against. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're arguing about who's more righteous because of these loopholes and exception causes, whatever. And Jesus is trying to undermine all of that, saying no one has any grounds to feel righteous in this divorce thing because in God's ideal... It was to have a single, one-flesh relationship that would last for, for life. And yes, he permits it, but it's not his righteous ideal. Jesus is saying all divorce involves sin, so the spouse who initiates it can't feel righteous. Now let's compare all these teachings together. Just as you can't feel righteous about not murdering somebody if you've got violence in your heart, and just as you can't feel righteous about not committing adultery if you've got lust in your heart, so too you can't feel righteous about any divorce because it all involves and reflects a hardness of heart. And just as kingdom people should strive to purge their hearts from all anger and all hatred and all violence that leads to murder and is itself a form of murder, and just as kingdom people should strive to purge our hearts of all lust that leads to adultery and is a form of adultery, So also, kingdom people must strive to avoid the hardness of heart that leads to divorce. And it's a form of divorce. If your heart is hard towards your spouse, you're divorced in your heart. That's the very thing we're to strive to purge, because we're called to a higher law than the law of external behavior. That's why the semblance of marriage, keeping the legality of it, uh, without any of the reality of it, is, is a violation of kingdom principles. We're called to live by the law of love, which doesn't just address our behavior physically, but it addresses our mind, it addresses our words, it addresses our heart. We're to live by the law of love that should motivate us, uh, those of us who are married, to guard our hearts carefully from any calluses that we might develop towards our spouse, any unforgiveness. uh, Keeping the account, letting the bitterness grow, growing apart from one another, guard your heart. But what we really need to see here is this. Follow me on this. Just as Jesus is not tightening the legal restrictions or the social consequences for murder and adultery, I don't believe for a moment that he's trying to tighten the legal restrictions or social consequences of divorce and remarriage by saying that divorced people should never get remarried again. Yes, it misses the mark on God's ideal of having one sexual partner for life. And in that sense, it involves adultery, just like any sex outside of marriage uh, involves adultery. Just like lusting after a person in their mind involves adultery, it misses the bullseye of a a single one-flesh relationship for life. But the point of Jesus is not to tighten the belt of the Old Testament, to enact tougher laws than the Old Testament gave us, is to undermine our self-righteousness in getting divorced and getting remarried and to set before us God's true ideal that we're to strive for. But I don't believe for a moment he's revoking the Old Testament allowance for divorce and remarriage. In fact, if you read it carefully, Jesus, along with everybody else in the Bible, assumes that divorced people will get remarried. Read Matthew 5 again very carefully. Jesus says, Anyone who divorces his wife causes her to become an adulteress he uses the word poieo there we get the word poem from that it means to create or to produce so jesus here says that the man and again he's only speaking to the man who pushes your wife out the door and writes a bill of divorce you are creating an adulteress but he puts the blame on the man not on the woman because he assumes the woman's going to get remarried In fact, as I mentioned before, options for single women in the ancient Jewish world were very, very few. He assumes that. And that is assumed throughout the Bible. So in conclusions, let me say three things. Here's three things that I believe. Number one, I believe, in the light of these teachings that we've gone through, that married couples should fight like heaven for their marriages. I was going to say fight like hell, but I thought it would be inappropriate. (laughs) Fight like heaven! Man, be tenacious. Be tenacious. Because I, again, want to say this. I don't care how far apart you are. I don't care what wrongs have been done. Even affairs, you know what? See, because of this technical thinking, people have sometimes, as soon as affair happens, people think, oh, now we have to get divorced. And I want to encourage you not to think that way. I don't think that's how the verse was to, to, to be applied. Affairs are almost always the tip of the iceberg. And, and, and if you're willing to forgive and the other person is willing to work on it, uh, they can be the turnaround of your marriage. I've known a number of people who the affair was what got, finally got them addressing the underlying issues in their marriage that made their, their marriages mediocre or miserable uh, or, or whatever. And, and so I want to encourage you, that's not a deal breaker. No, that, that, it shouldn't happen. But if there, there could be forgiveness and, and, and two people are willing to work on it, God can use that. Everything evil can be turned for good. And so I want to encourage you to fight like heaven. For your marriages. Number two, because God is loving and gracious, a loving and gracious God who accommodates His ideals to our fallen situation. I believe, in fact, I'd say I know that God truly honors and blesses remarriages. Uh, Not just because I've seen it, but because it's biblical. Look at it; it's not God's ideal. Got that? But a lot of our life isn't God's ideal. Uh, We're already working on planned. C and D and E and F and some of us Z and some of us 14 times through the alphabet, all right? And so the question is not what's the ideal, but what is the best given this situation? And God, God even blessed the polygamous marriages and even the concubine thing in the Old Testament. He's a God who's willing to accommodate. And, and I, I just, I've known too many remarried folks who have lived under this kind of tint of suspicion. And like maybe this, you know, and, and I, I, I want to rebuke that and just say live in the blessing of God. And thirdly, people who are now single because of divorce, I don't believe for a moment, are shut out from the possibility of remarriage. Um, God may call you to being uh, single. Or as one person said to me after the service, last service, uh, he wanted to call it enhanced celibacy, not singleness. Because it's celibacy that enhances you to do kingdom work, whatever. Um, but look at it. If God calls you to that, that's a wonderful thing. Whether you're divorced or whether you've never been married, singleness is an honorable calling. In fact, while marriage was God's ideal in the beginning, since the fall, Jesus and Paul make it clear that the real ideal now as an accommodation is to remain single if you can. Uh, Jesus and Paul both say that, that you'll be, you can be more focused on the kingdom uh, if you're not married. Now, uh, being single has certain you know, issues and problems and struggles that go along with that. But as every married person in the house will tell you, so does marriage. So choose your poison. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, you know, God will grow you either way. You know, I'm good either way. <laughs> no. uh, but see, here's the thing. Paul and Jesus make it clear that you can only do that if God calls you to that, if God empowers you for that. Um, and, and Paul said that it's better to be married than to be walking around frustrated, burning with passion, 1 Corinthians 7. And so you've got to follow your calling. And all I'm saying is this. If you're not called to singleness, then be open to the possibility of remarriage, and that can be a blessed thing. I've just known too many people who live in this uh, unnatural state for them, this this pain and this misery, because they think that the door for remarriage is shut for them, um, and it's not their calling, it's not their giftedness. So I I believe you can be open to that and should be open to that. I want to end by praying for the marriages. Of people in this congregation you know, who are listening through podcasts and then praying for those who've been divorced and, or, or just who've always been single. And as I do so, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward and I'm going to give you this invitation that if you're here and, and have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, I, I encourage you to come forward and pray with these folks. Maybe it's about a marriage issue, a single issue, maybe it's about something totally different. But pray with me here. Just receive this. Father, I hold before you the marriages of all who are hearing this sermon right now. And God, I pray that, uh, that, that just your blessing on those marriages. Some maybe are really strong and doing good. Others are maybe really shaky. And there may, in fact, undoubtedly, there are some who have got their foot out the door already. Lord, I pray that you would give those people who are thinking about bailing, uh, God, the, the, I don't know the circumstances, and there are times, I know, Lord, where, where you say that is, unfortunately, the only option they can choose. But God, if the marriage is at all salvageable, would you give them the wisdom to see that and the character to press on with this? Not to wallow in misery the rest of their life in a condemned state, but to believe and hope and trust that if they submit this to you and get the help they need, that you can take something that right now is profoundly ugly and painful and turn something beautiful and liberating out of it, Lord God. I pray, Lord God, that you'd see that by shutting the divorce door, they're opening up a world of possibility. And help them to move forward in that with you. And God, for those who are divorced, God, I pray that you would give them a sense of calling. If they're not remarried yet, give them a sense of calling, what your will is for them, whether to be, they're, they're to be open to new relationships uh, or whether you're calling them to singleness and celibacy. God, just give them direction. But I also pray, God, that for all who have been remarried or are thinking about being remarried, God, that you, you, you root out of their hearts and minds any, any sort of shame that might be attached to that, any pollution that might be attached to that, any kind of indictment that might be attached to that, anything that might possibly sabotage a beautiful relationship that you're calling them to, I want to come against that in Jesus' name and pray, Lord, that we would be a people who walk in freedom and grace, who strive for your ideals passionately, but God, who also live in the law of love, that knows how to wisely apply the ideals to the fallen world in which we live, Lord God. Set us free and keep us free in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom. The altar is open.